It's rarely about the presenting issue. I've been to see a counselor at different times in my life. Even now, I'll have different seasons of my life where I will have therapy, which is really helpful for me. You know, it's been a a big way God has helped me grow in self-awareness and learn. And one of the things that I've learned in my own life and just pastorally walking with people is that it's rarely about the presenting issue. Oftentimes, there's something that's causing a problem And I want that problem to go away. But there's a problem beneath that problem, and that's the issue. And to really change, people have to deal with that. They have to deal with the problem beneath the problem. And any counselor worth their salt, that's what they're going to address. The deeper issue, the root of it. Jesus is referred to as the wonderful counselor. In the book of Isaiah, the wonderful counselor. You know, most of us, we think about Jesus as loving and kind, but not all that intelligent. I say that in jest, but it's true because for many of us, if I were to say, let's play a, a word association game and tell me the first person who comes into your mind when I say the word smart, most of you probably all of you would not say Jesus first. You might say Einstein or Steve Jobs or Bill Gates. But if Jesus is who the Bible claims he is, if he is who we believe him to be, then he's not only the most loving and compassionate person who's ever lived, he's also the smartest. And you say, well, yeah, I mean, he's God. He's also human, and Jesus as a human had insight into God, into human nature, into the world that's been unmatched. I mean, Jesus was brilliant. And this is important that we see Jesus this way. Because as Dallas Willard says, if we don't see Jesus as smart or intelligent, then are we going to be inclined to follow him? To learn from him? Jesus is the wonderful counselor. And like a good counselor, what Jesus is going to do in the Sermon on the Mount, in the text we're going to look at today and over the coming weeks, Jesus is going to take us to the problem beneath the problem. Did you know that 90% of icebergs are below the waterline? When you see an iceberg in a a picture or movie or in real life, it looks massive, but you're looking at only 10%. 90% of the iceberg is below the surface of the water. And this is what did the Titanic in. It wasn't the the part above the waterline. It was the part below that gouged the side of the ship and caused it to sink. In the same way, listen, The iceberg of the human being, human personality, there's a part that we see, but it's only 10%. And 90% is below the waterline. Let me show you what I mean. When we look at people, what we see is their behavior. We see their choices and how they live. What we don't see are their intentions, their desires, their feelings, their thoughts, their attitudes, their values, their beliefs. We don't see any of that. But that is the vast majority of the person. Now, Jesus 
like any good counselor, what he's going to do, he's going to take us underneath the waterline and he's going to say, these are the issues that I want to address. And I'll just tell you, today and over the coming weeks, it's going to be uncomfortable because Jesus is going to get in our business as he does this. And his goal, as Jesus teaches on, on this part of the human personality, and we're going to unpack it, his goal is to not make us feel bad about ourselves. He's the wonderful counselor, and his, his goal is not to just help us learn about ourselves. No, Jesus' goal is to help us thrive because he has a vision for our lives, for your life. And he's committed to his followers moving towards that vision. Why? Because he knows that is how we truly will flourish. That is how we will live life to the full. And so he begins this section in the Sermon on the Mount by addressing an issue that we probably wouldn't have guessed would be top of mind, but it is for Jesus. He says this in Matthew 5, 21, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now, this is the sixth commandment of the 10 commandments in Exodus. And Jesus, he says, you have heard, because most of his audience probably couldn't read, and they relied on what they heard, and so they had heard the 10 commandments. And so Jesus says, you know the, the sixth commandment, right? And then he goes on, he says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, what's Jesus doing when he says this? You've heard it said, but I tell you, Jesus is not replacing the Ten Commandments. He's not replacing the law. He is showing that rightly understood the commandment to not murder goes way deeper and it's way more all-encompassing than his audience realized. Last week, Patrick did a great job of helping us understand the verses right before this where Jesus said to that group of people surrounding him in the desert that they said, listen, your righteousness must surpass the scribes and Pharisees. And what any of them, what all of them would have been thinking in that moment is how? How? Because the Pharisees and the scribes, they were the most righteous people in that day. They were regarded that way. And, and, and what Jesus does, it's so brilliant. He says, no, righteousness is not just about what's above the waterline. It's about what's below. And so again, he's taking his audience, he's taking us below by saying, I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean to be angry? Well, we know Jesus can't mean by saying this that all anger is bad because Jesus himself was angry. In John chapter two, Jesus, he turns over tables, he makes a whip, literally. If you know this, Jesus, he makes a whip and he chases people out of the temple. I haven't seen that story featured in many children's Bible storybooks, but it's there. Jesus was angry. Ephesians tells us, be angry and do not sin, which tells us anger itself can't be a sin. And I would argue 
not only is anger not a sin, anger serves a vital function in life. I mean, if I'm with my son later today at the grocery store and somebody walks past him and makes fun of his appearance or pushes him down, I'm going to get real angry. And that anger is sending a message to my brain and is telling me a boundary has been crossed. This is not okay. You see, in that situation, it would be wrong to not be angry. See, part of the problem with Christians and myself included is we don't get angry at the right things. So it's not a a sin to be angry. The, The key distinction in this verse, in this context, this is not anger at a situation. This is anger at a person. Jesus, he says, I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister, a fellow disciple of Jesus, will be subject to judgment. Jesus was angry at sin and injustice. This is anger at a person. And this is a specific type of anger. The the best way I know to describe what this is talking about is this is personal animosity. And the dictionary defines animosity as a feeling of strong dislike towards somebody. That's what this is. And we see that in the next verses. Jesus, he says, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court. Now, this is an Aramaic term of contempt. It it means empty. And it's saying, you're empty. Your brain's empty. Like, you're, you're a dummy, you blockhead. That's what this is kind of saying. And then the next part, anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. And the word for fool there is the Greek word moros, which you may have guessed, that's the word from which we get the word moron. You're a moron. And whereas raka is more about intelligence, you don't know anything, this is more about character. Now, we're going to keep going and and unpack this, but there's three things Jesus is doing. And we need to see this pattern. This is going to continue in the coming weeks. First, Jesus is exposing what's underneath. Let's revisit the image of an iceberg, okay? Jesus is saying, he's saying, it's not about the presenting issue. There's a deeper problem. He's saying, listen, y'all, murder is a symptom The problem is anger. Saying raka, calling someone stupid, that's a symptom. The problem is anger. Calling somebody a fool, he says, it's a symptom. It's it's what you can see. But the deeper problem is anger underneath. And according to Jesus, again, this is a big deal. I mean, think about it for a moment. He says The person who says stupid to someone else is guilty of the same judgment as somebody who murders. This is what Jesus says. Why? Because what's underneath is the same. And so take this back to murder, the original command. Sixth commandment, do not commit murder. When Jesus said that, his audience thought, whew, haven't done that, haven't done that in a week. I mean, most of these people have not They weren't murderers. In the same way, when we talk about murder, you're like, okay, good. Like, check, I'm off the hook. You know, I I haven't done that. But what Jesus essentially says, listen to them and to us, he says, murder is an attitude 
of the heart. And this attitude is present any time you have contempt for someone else or animosity you insult. And I, I think this is profound because I, I think Jesus is putting his finger on the issue. I mean, there, there's 25,000 murders every year in the United States on average. Let's just pretend that that were to go away. So 2023, there's no murders in the United States. That'd be an amazing thing, right? But do you believe if that were the case that we would all just get along perfectly? Like it'd be awesome, you'd go on social media and be like, everybody's just encouraging each other. This is fantastic. No. We would still be hurting each other, right? And don't get me wrong, that would be amazing if that were to happen, if we were to not murder each other. But Jesus, again, he's saying, you murder the character of someone else all the time. You, you murder somebody's reputation through gossip, and that's what gossip is. You murder somebody whenever you have contempt and you, you say something that demeans them. And so let me just ask you as we're Walking through this passage, where is that attitude in your heart right now? Where do you have contempt for someone? Who, if you're leaving church today and you see them pulled over by a police officer and getting a ticket, who would you, you'd smile a little bit if you were to see that? And I don't mean like a maniacal laugh, but you, but you would grin like, yeah, that's, that's good. Because this is subtle. And the human impulse, when I talk about this, the human impulse is to dismiss it, which is the exact problem Jesus is addressing. Because Jesus is saying this is not overt. It's not always the violent act of murder. Now, this is subtle. And this tendency... It, it grows inside of us. And at any time, in these seemingly in insignificant moments, when you vilify someone else, you look down on them, Jesus says, this attitude's in you. Now, the second thing Jesus is doing, he's not just exposing, he's revealing the seriousness of what's underneath. I want you to look at verse 22. Anyone who says, you fool, according to Jesus, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Does this mean if you've called someone a fool in your life, you're going to hell? That if you, if you do this today, if you call someone a fool, you're going to hell? This, this word for hell is the, the word Gehenna. It's actually a Greek transliteration of two different words, which means the valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom, and this was an actual place. It's a ravine south of Jerusalem where rubbish was dumped and continually burned. And that place became a euphemism for the fire of hell. And that place is what Jesus' audience would have pictured. Calling somebody a fool is not the unforgivable sin. You can avoid doing that and do the, the very thing that Jesus is condemning in these verses. It's not just about that one word. 
What Jesus is doing, he's using exaggerated language to make a point. And the point Jesus is making is this kind of anger that he's talking about, this personal animosity, it is destructive and it leads to ruin. That's his point. Think of Gehenna again. Jesus is saying, this anger, it will ruin other people and your own soul. In other words, you don't know how serious this is. This, this will eat your soul, dude. Now, real quickly, why is this so serious to Jesus? Because he seems pretty amped up about this. And this is an important perspective as we continue through the Sermon on the Mount. In Jesus' mind and in the Hebrew worldview, the Old Testament, human beings are sacred and infinitely valuable to God. That's why not murdering someone doesn't do justice to treating people rightly. I mean, think about it. If, if we live in a purely material universe and there is no God, who cares what we call each other? I mean, I get we're trying to propagate the species, so don't kill somebody, but it doesn't matter what you call them, right? But according to the Bible, we are emotional and spiritual beings made in the image of God and of incalculable worth to him. And here's what's true about our words, okay? Proverbs 18, 21, it says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruits. You know the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That couldn't be farther from the truth. What's more true is to say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can cut me to the very core of who I am. Many of you today, the deepest wounds that you've experienced in your life had been because of the words of someone else. Many of you today, the deepest regrets you have in life are the words in a moment of anger that you said to somebody and you can't take back. You see, Jesus knows what's underneath those words is this animosity, this contempt, and he says it will destroy you and the people that you love. That's why this is so serious to Jesus. And the third thing he's doing, Jesus is inviting us to deal with what's underneath. And this is really important to understand. Why is Jesus saying all this? Is it just to make us realize how awful we are? Like, wow, I'm a really terrible person. No, Jesus is inviting us to deal with what's underneath. And that's why there has been no command given so far. Isn't that interesting? No command yet. Why doesn't Jesus say, don't do these three things? Because it's not about the three things. He's shining a light on a bigger problem, on what's beneath the surface. And he's saying, you and I, we need to deal with that. And this is much harder, isn't it? I mean, it's much easier to focus on modifying my behavior than dealing with the heart. It is much easier for us to leave today and say, okay, I'm gonna stop calling people a fool. But who does that? You know, I, I'm not gonna call anybody a fool. It's much harder 
to deal with the deep anger that has its roots down into my motivations and my desires and my feelings. And some of you would say, for good reason. But that is what Jesus is inviting us to address. And how? How do we address it? Well, he, in this passage, he gives us two illustrations that help us understand what it looks like for followers of Jesus in this part of our lives. He says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar first, go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. Now, to get the gravity of this example, we we need some context. What Jesus is describing here is one of the most important moments in the life of somebody who loves God. A couple times a year, you would go to Jerusalem to offer the kind of sacrifice he's talking about here. And not everybody lived in Jerusalem. And so you're traveling by foot for maybe 10 miles, 50 miles to Jerusalem with an animal, and you get there, and then you have to go through all these rituals and cleansings to make sure you can go into the temple, and then you finally go into the temple, and then it's finally your turn, and you get up to the altar, and you're about to offer the sacrifice, and at that exact moment, you remember, you know, my brother back in Galilee, he has an issue with me. Jesus says, leave and go. Be reconciled to your brother first and then come back. It is almost impossible for us to imagine the inconvenience that Jesus is asking people to endure. I mean, if I'm there, I'm like, Jesus, that is not even feasible. Jesus, are you serious? Jesus, why can't I just offer my gift and then go and then make it right with my brother and then praise you from my home and say, yes, Now, Jesus says no, because in that moment, don't miss it, he says in that moment, there is something more important than your offering. So go. And when you think about this example, this hit me this week. I hadn't thought about it this way. This example that Jesus uses, there's a powerful point I think he's making. Because what purpose does a sacrifice on the altar have? The whole point of the sacrificial system and of this kind of an offering was to make your broken relationship right with God. But Jesus is saying, and again, this this sounds so strong, he's saying you can't be right with God until you're right with your brother or sister. Leave your gift and go and then come back. And this is such a strong statement. But I put it this way because I think that's what Jesus is saying. Matt, are are you saying that I can't be saved if I'm not right with my brother? No, I am not saying that. We are saved by grace alone. But there is a clear priority and an unmistakable warning here for followers of Jesus. Don't miss it. And this aligns with the prophets in the Old Testament. I mean, think of how many times God says, I hate all your festivals. 
All your show would be like him saying, Grace Fellowship, I hate your worship services. Why does God feel that way? Because he says in the Old Testament, you come and you pretend like everything's right with me, but you're not right with other people. There is injustice all around you and you don't care. So again, there's a priority here. Now, what does it mean to be right with somebody if we're gonna try to follow Jesus? And is that even possible always? This can't mean that every time there's something that someone has against us that we're on the hook to go make it right because, I mean, think about Jesus. People had beef with Jesus constantly and he didn't always go and try to make it right. This phrase, your brother or sister has something against you, almost for sure, means a legitimate complaint. And think about the context. Again, this immediately follows Jesus saying that that there can be this personal animosity that grows in our hearts. That's the context. So Matt's translation, okay? I have done something to hurt my brother or sister in Jesus. Anger in some way has oozed out of me and hurt them. When I have awareness of that, it's on me to go make it right. And I've heard it said that when people have conflict, there's two types of people. Some people look under their own hood and other people look under the other person's hood. I don't know what type of person you are, if you tend to think, oh, what did I do wrong? There's, there's conflict in this relationship. Or, man, this person needs to get it together. But, but this is saying to all of us, all followers of Jesus, look under your own hood. How have you contributed to the problem? And when you realize that there's something there, The way of Jesus, the costly, inconvenient way of Jesus is to go and make it right. Now, is this saying we always do this in every situation no matter what? No. This isn't a law. These verses, this illustration is describing the point Jesus just made. He's giving us an example of the kind of heart that takes anger super seriously. There are times where in wisdom we do not go to a brother or sister that we've hurt. In the 12 steps that we go through here at Regeneration every Monday night, step nine is making amends. That's what this is talking about. But a key thing, a principle that that you have to discern as you make amends is will this Will me going to them, will it cause further harm to them or to me? And if so, I don't go. Doesn't mean I don't go ever, but I don't go. Now, discomfort is not the same thing as harm. We can all get out of this by saying, oh, this is, you know. But again, in wisdom, there's times where we don't, do this. You have to look at the whole counsel of, of Scripture. And lastly, let me say this, that this is so complex because reconciliation involves two. And this is why the Apostle Paul in Romans, he says, if it's possible, 
as far as it depends on you live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you, because it's not all up to you. Reconciliation takes two. And so sometimes living at peace with someone is not possible. Maybe you're here today and you've tried to reconcile with somebody and they were not receptive. Maybe they didn't even let you get a word in. Maybe the person you need to reconcile with is no longer available. They're, they're not here. You couldn't reconcile even if you tried. Others in the room, maybe you, you've done what you can do and you just deeply desire for that other person to take ownership of their part to come to you to reconcile and you're just living with this unresolved conflict and you ache. Listen, the, the more life experience I get and I know that I'm a, a young man relatively, but the more of life experience that I get, the more I've come to realize that you cannot change another human being. You can't. And that powerlessness, because that's what it is, that powerlessness can be overwhelming. And, and, and so today, if you're there, some of you, you're there right now, know that the story isn't over. And know that God knows what it's like. I mean, think about Adam and Eve. Think about Israel in the Old Testament, the prodigal son. God has constantly had people breaking relationship with him who were unwilling to reconcile. And so it's right to feel hurt. Some of you, you hurt and you ache, and it's right to feel that way, but God knows. And you're not alone. And I'm going to make a, a, a sharp pivot because I want to talk about this last illustration quickly that Jesus gives, which is kind of the other piece of this reconciliation emphasis that he has. He, he says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, in Jesus' day, if you defaulted on your debts, you could be thrown into debtor's prison until that was paid. And that's what he's talking about here. The closest equivalent for us today might be getting sued. Somebody is taking you to court. But, but just like the last example, Jesus' point is broader. He's not giving legal advice. This is not just for those of us who are getting sued. What, what's Jesus' point? Jesus is stressing the urgency of reconciliation. That judgment is looming. Justice is coming. Time is running out. And he's saying that reconciling with a brother, with a sister, it is more urgent than you know. And failure, this is what this is saying, failure to take advantage of the opportunity for reconciliation means that you must bear the penalty of being unreconciled. You could say it 
this way, that wrecked relationships can wreck your life. And if you keep saying, you know, tomorrow, next year, I'm gonna repair this someday. Jesus, he's trying to say, no, no, no. You don't know how much time you have. And this is way more urgent than you realize. So his first illustration is about priority. This is about urgency. If you had to to sum it up, I think this is what Jesus is saying to us today. He's saying restoring broken relationships is more important than you know. And it's more urgent than you realize. Restoring broken relationships is more important than you know. And it's more urgent than you realize. Now, how do we apply this to our lives? Well, it's, it's not all that complicated, but it's incredibly demanding. And in our, our first week, as we began to look at the Sermon on the Mount, we asked the question, am I willing to follow Jesus by doing what he says to do throughout our study of the Sermon on the Mount. What is Jesus saying to do? I think Jesus is saying to all of us today, he's saying, attend to the relational brokenness in your life. Attend to it. Give it attention. Some of us today, some of you, you pushed the relational brokenness in your life so far down, you're not even aware of it anymore. But ignoring it doesn't make it go away. And Jesus is inviting you to go there, to deal with it. And again, it's not to make you miserable. It's because he wants to heal you. He wants to restore what's been broken. Because broken relationships, again, they're more important than you know. They're more urgent than you realize. Some some of you today... You are acutely aware of the brokenness in a relationship. Maybe not even a day goes by that you don't think about it. And what Jesus is inviting you to do, this text is inviting you to, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with that person. Live at peace. And peace is something we have to contend for. I mean, some of us like peacekeeping, We're good at that. But peacemaking is very different. And that's something we have to contend for. And and maybe today you're saying, well, what would I say? What would I even say? It can be as simple as saying three of the hardest words to say in the English language. These are really difficult words to say. And the words are simply this, I was wrong." And they're hard to say because some of us, when we try to say them, it comes out like, I was wrong, but so were you. Or, I was wrong, but you were more wrong. You were wronger than me. Listen, what this is saying is whatever part of the blame pie that you own, is it 85%, is it 50, is it it 10%? That you go to the person and you say, I was wrong for fill in the blank. And you take responsibility and you say, will you forgive me? That's what Jesus is inviting us to do. And as we do this, listen, we, we leave the outcomes up to God. Because we can't control what happens. 
But we know this, that, that your broken relationships are more important than you know. And they're more urgent than you realize. And so as we end today, why would we do this? I mean, we got to wrestle with what does this look like for me with priority, with urgency to do this. But, but why? Why should we follow Jesus by doing what he says to do? Because he's the wonderful counselor. And more than that, he is the ultimate peacemaker. You know, understand that through his blood shed on the cross, Jesus has made for us permanent, lasting peace with God forever. And relationships are broken, aren't they? I mean, east of Eden, no matter what relationship you have, it will be marked at times by tension, by disappointment, by frustration. But in the midst of that, we can know and we can be anchored in the reality that our relationship with God will never change. And it's because of that, and it's through that, it's through the truth and the power of the gospel that we can follow Christ into these hard places. What would that look like for you? Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for your grace and you, your mercy. God, we also thank you that you love us enough through your word and your spirit to address things in our hearts that need to be addressed, that are uncomfortable at times. And God, I just pray today, I, I know there's so many different life situations and pain points that all of us have. God, would you, through your spirit, help us to know what it looks like for us to respond to this. Would you give us the courage to take a step today? We thank you, Jesus, that you are the ultimate peacemaker. And so we rest in that. We celebrate that. Help us live from that hope. And we pray this in Jesus' name.